Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Hello, hello. Happy Friday to all of you. I am so excited to be with you for the next couple hours as we dig into the biggest news stories of the week. Stuff, of course, that's been talked about on the Evan Solomon Show. Stuff throughout the week. Stuff that we're going to, you know, breaking news that's happening today. And, of course, um, in the second hour from 1 to 2, we're going to get into our panel debate, um, which is often my favorite part of the show. I'll be totally candid because <laughs> we really get to kind of chew into those big issues and talk about them. But welcome. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, uh, hosting an extra bonus two hours of free-for-all Friday all summer long until September. So you have uh, a couple more weeks with me at the very least. Um, and certainly we have, I think, a fun show, an interesting show, an engaging show today. Um, it struck me as I was looking at the topics that a lot of them actually touch on issues that impact women. And I think that's important. One is there's not a ton of us female radio show hosts out there, uh, so I'm grateful to be part of that group, but also grateful to be here talking to you about those things. One thing, for example, and I guess this affects both men and women, but we're going to talk over the next block uh, in, in about 20 minutes. Believe it or not, it's been 10 years since Tinder was started in, in, in about a couple weeks from now. 10 years and we're going to talk to an expert, but I really have been fascinated by this. Are we better for it? Are we better for online dating in this country, in this world? Are we worse for it? I, I kind of have two iterations of of online dating, right? I, When I was younger, um, I was alive in the time where you couldn't actually get in, like texting wasn't a thing. <laughs> so we sent maybe, you got mail was the most advanced version of things. Uh, and then I got divorced, um, came back into the dating market and had to learn about all this online dating situation. Now I'm engaged very happily. And actually we met in person, not even online, but, uh, you know, to me, it's just been a really interesting metamorphosis to have existed in both sort of worlds and learning about both worlds. So we'll, we'll dig into that for sure. Uh, we're also, I'm so excited about this. Uh, Jerry mentioned it. Uh, if you're listening in Ontario, just before the, I came on, we're going to talk to a 16 year old teen girl from Comox Valley, BC, who is training to be a formula one racer. And that is such a huge deal. It's it's a male-dominated sport. Um, you know, there have been female uh, test drivers, uh, one of whom is named Susie Wolf. She's the wife of Total Wolf, who is uh, who's the head of the Mercedes team. Obviously, I'm, I'm a bit of an F1 fan. But the idea that a female um, would be training for this, getting through that process, and potentially even race, which is a goal that many of the teams have sort of stated, I think is a significant one. And certainly, if it could be a Canadian, it would be even more amazing. And then we're going to debate... Uh, a little bit later on in the show, uh, what the Peterborough mayor said. So Peterborough, Ontario mayor, the Q, I don't know if folks followed it, the QAnon queen um, came forward and uh, asked some of her followers to uh, arrest police officers. That did not go well. The mayor, who is a is a woman, responded by calling people calling these people as the F word, which some folks have been calling into question. Is that appropriate? Is that mayoral? Is that a thing women should do? Uh, anybody who knows me not on air will know that I I am a, I do swear quite a bit. So I'm one for emphasis on that, and I think it's a good thing to do, but interested in your feedback on 71010, and certainly we'll talk about it later on the show. But I do want to get into the big issue I want to talk about off the top, and we're certainly going to talk about this today, too, in the in the back hour. It has been one year since the Taliban took over in Afghanistan, when the Western world, led by the U.S., fled the country. So if you'll remember, cast your minds back, August 15th, 2021, in the lead-up to, we had planes, people trying to evacuate, people, you know terrified, scared, trying to get out of the country any way they could, the Taliban entered Afghanistan's capital city of Kabul and they took over. In particular, the thing that stuck home with me that I still remember to this day is the video of a young, of a mother 
passing her newborn child over a barbed wire fence to American soldiers because she so feared for her baby's life that she thought they'd have a better chance with strangers than with herself. And I cannot imagine what it would be like to make that decision. And I think history has proven her right if we look at what's happening now in Afghanistan a year later. Since that day, for example, the U.S. Institute of Peace says there are more people going hungry in, the, in Afghanistan than anywhere else in the world. It's arguably the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Their economy has completely collapsed. And speaking to our theme of women and girls, human rights violations against them have mounted. And you'll remember, and I remember, initial promises from Taliban officials that women and girls would be able to, you know, continue in school, continue to do their jobs, but under Sharia law. But we know that isn't happening. For example, the Taliban has abolished the Ministry of Women's Affairs. They've banned girls from attending school past sixth grade. They've barred women from most jobs outside the home. Women must now cover their faces in public. They must remain in homes, in their homes, except in case of necessity. And they're banned from traveling long distances without male chaperones. So that's just a few of the things. So basically, decades of progress on gender equality and women's rights were wiped out in mere months. In mere months. And we watched. And we have stood by and we watched it happen. And even worse, I think, to a certain extent, looked away. And if we look at our conduct as Canadians, and obviously, you know, Afghanistan was a huge endeavor by the Canadian military by us as a country. Um, our soldiers died over there, over 100 dead. Canada promised, and in light of this, in light of the, the Western world fleeing Afghanistan, because that's what it was, Canada promised to accept 40,000 Afghan refugees. So far, a year later, 17,000 have arrived, far less than we promised. Now, the government says 8,000 more are on their way. You know, experts, people involved in on the ground tell different stories. There are some remarkable stories of rebirth. For example, there's a story I was reading about a, an Afghan refugee. She settled here a year ago in Calgary. Shortly after arriving, she gave birth to a baby. You know, her. this is a quote from her I want to read to you. I left all my achievements, my family, my, my civilians, my loved ones, everything behind. I came to Canada. It's absurd. I felt like a dead body. She's now a women's rights activist. She volunteers with women's organizations. She's a case manager for immigration services in the city. And she also helps other Afghan families adjust to life outside Calgary as they arrive. So there's hope. There are stories like this. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. And many remain stranded. Um, a year later, we know Afghans who assisted us, who were recruited by D&D, Defense, National Defense's language, culture advisors, remain in that country. Miriam Sahar, a former interpreter for the Canadian Forces in Afghanistan, told the Evan Solomon Show this week her sister, brother-in-law, and their new baby remain stuck in Afghanistan. Does Canada want to be known as a country of action and compassion or one of a paperwork and cowardice? She says while three family members made it out of Afghanistan on the last flight, she's still fighting for her sister who gave birth last week. I mean, I'm getting emotional, Ewan, because... Like, that baby was not given a birth certificate. They struggled to get a birth certificate for him. And this is how they're living. The humiliation, the insults, the disrespect. She says the Canadian government is not doing enough to help. And the paperwork is ridiculous. The government of Canada has certainly uh, failed the Afghan interpreters. Um, there's still a lot of requirements uh, that needs to be fulfilled uh, before they brought you um, Canada. We also know, for example, four former interpreters have filed actually complaints with the Canadian Human Rights Commission against the government. Um, we know the government, Canadian government, has stopped accepting new applications for the special immigration program. So we, you know, I, I appreciate that they've gotten 17,000 here, candidly, here today, ranting about this. I'll tell you it's not enough. 
And it's not just me saying this. NDP immigration critic Jenny Kwan is demanding that the federal government do more to help Afghans who assisted Canadian forces flee the war-torn country. It is not acceptable. No more excuses. Get on with it and do your job. Fulfill the responsibility and the duty of bringing them to safety. She also warned lives are at stake and the government will be at fault if it does not act swiftly. They are part of the Canadian military. They served us when we needed them the most. They put their lives at risk and that of their family members at risk. Now, as we speak, they're being hunted down by the Taliban. We cannot abandon them. So to you today, as we sit here in Canada, lucky to be Canadians, um, you know, I'm in Toronto, lucky to see this blue sky and be safe and healthy. I think we have to look squarely at ourselves as a country. We have to look squarely at what's happening in Afghanistan. We should not look away. We should demand more of our government. We should demand more of our elected officials. We should demand more. It's not okay that only 17,000 have arrived here. I don't care what they promised about the 8,000. It's not okay that these people are stranded. It's not okay that even the refugees that are here who are trying to get their families across um, aren't able to do so. And, in fact, their families are being threatened or killed by the Taliban as we speak. So if you thought about it, this stuff actually works. Write your MP, engage on it. It's an important issue. It's one we should not forget about. I know it's been a year and things fade from the headlines. But part of what we do on this show and part of the reason I like to do this show is is to talk about these issues that may not be front of mind for all of us every day, but certainly need to be front of mind for us as we think about our duty to people who have helped us. Okay, next up on the show, it's been 10 years since Tinder entered our world. Are we worse off or better? We'll talk to an expert about that next on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, taking you into another August weekend, although not a long weekend for many of us. Hopefully it's sunny wherever you are. Uh, This next story I I thought was really fascinating, actually, and it came, came across my desk a couple weeks ago when I've been talking to producer Sam about sort of getting it on the show. Um, but some of you will probably, old, some of you old people like me will probably remember a simpler time, a time when you met someone in person. Like maybe you exchanged phone numbers. It was probably your landline. Maybe, maybe you sent an email to them to set up a date and you showed up at the bar nervous, hopeful that they would come, but no way to know if they were going to be late, if they would show up, if they would not. Maybe you answered personal ads. Maybe you've got mail was a real point for you in your life, Right. It's a time when we didn't know what ghosting was or catfishing was. Back when online dating, and I remember early days, uh, was something that was people were embarrassed about as opposed to the norm. And obviously today is different. Today online is the only way, really, for most people, especially young people. Uh, it is, in people of all ages, frankly, are getting into it. Um, it is, of course, this is being brought about because it's the, the 10th year anniversary of Tinder. Ten years ago, Tinder came into our lives, and I think like a couple different seminal sort of changes the iPhone, whatever, Tinder really has changed the way we interact with each other, uh, how we date, how we meet partners, how we, you know, build the rest of our lives. So I wanted to talk about that and just ask an expert, are we better or worse for this? So, of course, joining us today is Crystal Walter, dating expert and matchmaker in Calgary, based out of Calgary. Crystal, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. So, 
Crystal, you you're a matchmaker as well, so obviously this hasn't totally gotten rid of your business. Um, yeah. but just cu- curious for you, do you think we're better or worse off with online dating? You know, I think honestly, there's pros and cons to it. It goes both ways. I think for some people, it's made things worse, and for others, it's you know improved things. And you know, even if I take a client, I always say. Um, go online just try it if you haven't been online and then come back to me in a month if somebody has no idea how to date because you need to learn what it's like now and tinder has definitely changed that for everybody you got to do the you know the small talk you have to learn to be chatting to multiple different people you really got to see a bunch of profiles figure out what you like and what you don't uh and how you're going to handle dating and rejection and you know, getting out and meeting somebody. And I think aside from, you know, matchmaking, obviously when I do matchmake in Toronto, just to let you know, um, you gotta, you gotta try it. And I think it's fun and it can be really effective for a lot of people if you know how to do it, but it can also like really ruin your self-confidence and make dating traumatizing for you. So really just depends on how you go in. Yeah, and so and there was a recent study by the Pew Research Center, and 35% of respondents basically said, the current or recent user dating, it said that online dating made them feel more pessimistic. And I've certainly talked to friends of mine who are into that, who just say, I need a break from the apps, I can't handle it, all it is is, you know, another circus. Um, how can people make dating apps, I guess, less less pressing i don't know how to say that but like what's the best way to approach it because some folks just try it and give up so what's the best way to get the most out of it you know the best thing is to don't like a whole bunch of profiles all at once so then you have all these people that you have to talk to maybe pick like five um make sure your profile is good and use accurate current photos and if you like someone's profile and you like the, you know, short engagement that you're having online, then quickly ask to meet them. Make sure that they are who they say they are. Don't give out your phone number and be chatting for weeks or months because uh, that can happen. And, you know, meet them in person, figure out if you like them, and then move on to the next one if it's not going to go anywhere. But you got to just be real quick about it and meet them in person. Um, I think, you know, use the app just to meet people, not to you know, not as social media, not as, you know, a way to chat back and forth, because that's when, you know, it'll really wear on you. And you mentioned you provide, yeah, so no pen pals. That's a good tip, because I think some people get sucked into it, right? And then they don't, it never really amounts to anything, uh, which I think people find demoralizing. Um, You mentioned that you do matchmaking. I didn't realize, candidly, that that was still like a big industry, but um, yeah. There was a, a different study in the UK that estimated, you know, more than by 2035, most more relationships will begin online than not. Um, right. So do you think online dating is here to stay? And how does matchmaking intersect with that? Um, I do think online dating will stay, you know, it's free, uh, it's easy, and you can access profiles within minutes so I think it's always going to be intriguing and they're always going to come out with better options so I definitely don't think it's going anywhere um, and you know for me it's it's almost a benefit because once people do try it and it doesn't work for them then you know they're more intrigued about my process and using a matchmaker or trying to meet people organically in other ways so 
And then there are people who won't go online, you know, for confidentiality, and we get a lot of those people as well. But um, I definitely think that, you know, online dating is going to stay, and, you know, it's going to evolve. I don't know what's going to turn, <laughs> what it's going to turn into, but, um, like, look at Tinder. You know, it started things off, and now there's newer, better options, and I think it's just going to continue that way. Can I ask you how does how does matchmaking actually work nowadays? I've I've never done it, never met anybody that's done it. I know it exists. I've, I've obviously watched some you know reality shows where you know a a, a man it's or a woman like gets walked into a, a room with like five handsome people and <laughs> they meet. Is that how it works, or what? What what's the how does it how does it go on behind the scenes? Yeah, no. Well, interesting enough, like, you know, when COVID happened, we made some changes because I wasn't able to meet everybody in person, so. We have a database and a profiling system that's similar to online, but it's confidential. Um, and then I meet everyone, and then I send them, you know, appropriate profiles based on their preferences, and they pick through that group. Um, and then they meet in person, and either they date that person or they come back, and we start the process over again. So essentially, I'm the, the app. I'm doing it for you're, you. You're a human app. and Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I suppose with a bit more discretion and probably less AI, so it's a little little more personal than uh, when people go through. Um, yeah, and on... you have someone doing it with you and coaching you through it and getting feedback and helping you improve your dating. Um, so it's a little more of a hands-on approach. And, you know, there's real people. I have real team members, and we meet everybody, get to know everybody. Um, so, I mean, obviously our database it's a tool we use but essentially you have people helping you meet people and, and i wanted to ask this because you mentioned this actually tinder was a start of it and there's lots more out there right i just just cursely researched there's something called taste buds for music lovers which i thought would be about food but it's not um lucid for people who are sober now there's tabby for cat people i know hinge is a big deal um when i was trying this seven years ago uh it, Bumble was was the thing, and for me, I liked it because like kind of put the power in my hands, uh, so I could ask the guys first. Do you think that diversity is helpful to people as they kind of narrow down their interests? Because I guess that's something you would do naturally as part of a matchmaking service. But has that been a benefit of this? Right, and I mean, if somebody has like a real particular preference, like let's just say like the sober dating, um, an app like that is great because my database would be extremely limited. Um, the other thing, too, when you narrow things down by preferences, the pool to choose from is a lot smaller, not just with matchmaking, but with those apps, right? So you really got to be open to dating outside your area. Um, so, I mean, to me, I think it makes more sense to be on Hinge or Bumble and put on there, you know, that you're sober um, so that you're only getting matched with or people are reading that and seeing that. So you're only, you know, targeting the appropriate people. All right, uh, Crystal. We <laughs> sorry, per <laughs> perfect. Well, that's uh, Crystal. We've run out of racetrack here. So, Crystal Walker, Walter, Walter. She's a dating expert and matchmaker in Calgary. She's on the show to talk about the ten years since online dating started. Crystal, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. So there you go. Don't give up hope. Matchmaking services still exist, which is news to me. Uh, and I think there are some benefits to online dating. So to my friends who have given up, do not give up. There is there is there is hope out there on the other side, even if many folks find it pessimistic.
All right, next up, a young BC woman is hoping to make history as the first female F1 racing driver. We'll talk to her next on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, your host for the afternoon uh, from Free For All Friday. I'm here with you all summer long from noon to two. Uh, in the first hour, obviously, we unpack some interesting stories, stories that, that you know, jump out to me uh, as, as wonderful things to talk about. Friend. And I'm really excited about to talk about this next this next story. So some listeners will know I love F1 uh, and I am I would say I'm a newer F1 fan. It's been the last couple of years. I'm one of the uh, the people that was dragged in through the drive to survive. Um, show on Netflix and have since become it's it's appointment television watching for for my uh, my fiance Mark and I every Sunday and qualifying and all that stuff on the weekends so my friends know no don't bug me at 9 a.m on Sunday um, but this story is really interesting and there's a, a wonderful Canadian bent to it and before the break I mentioned the first woman in history to drive to, to be an F1 racing driver I should clarify that there actually has been one woman who has competed in F1 uh, herself, and her is Italy's Lila Lombardi, and it was 1976. She competed in the Austrian Grand Prix, but that was it. Um, since then, there's 20 drivers every year on the grid, 10 teams. No females have, have gotten that far since. The closest recently was Susie Wolf. She's the current CEO of Formula E Team Venturi, as I mentioned, and wife of Mercedes Team Principal Total Wolf. She was a test driver for Williams in 2015. But this is a great story about a Canadian, uh, Nicole Haverda, who's joining us now. Um, she's training, hopefully, to become a Formula One racer. So, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you. So, you were a competitive swimmer, and then you've now switched to, like, I guess, the precursor to to F one, which is karting. So, tell us, tell us what made you go from being a swimmer to want to be a race car driver. Yeah. So, I first actually I was a skier for a couple of years um, on a competitive level, and then I moved to swimming for six years. And then my dad, we went for a road trip to Europe, and we went to the Austrian Grand Prix. I was never into cars much, and we went to the F1 Grand Prix. And right away when I was watching, I was like, oh, my God, I really want to do this now. And right away I started emailing a lot of people, and I just got right away out of swimming, and I started karting. And now I'm working my way up the level in open-wheel cars, so now I'm in Formula 3. And can you explain to listeners who aren't super familiar with it, and I, I kind of have a passing familiarity, but how does it, there's Formula 3, there's Formula 2, there's Formula 1, how does that, and there's the karting below that, so how does that system, how do you graduate up that system eventually to become one of these 20 drivers on the grid? Yeah, so usually, um, normally Formula 1 drivers, they start in karting, which is a great uh, platform it's to get race experience and all that stuff in a little kart, and then you go to Formula 4, and then there's Formula 3 and Formula 2, and there's the Formula One, the biggest, and yeah, it's kind of just a ladder of the of the racing ladder, practically. And how are you doing this? So, uh, you know, I think Formula One, Formula Driving Racing generally is is very. I mean, it's all over the world. It's super popular in Europe. It's certainly gaining lots of popularity here in Canada. But is there? Are you training? And you're from Comox Valley. Are you training at home? Are you traveling? Like, how is what's that process been like for you to do this? Um. Well, for us, it's, like, very, uh, very, very crazy because we have to drive all the way to the States, and then that's where all the racing for me is right now. 
And so we have to go to California for a lot of testing and stuff. And then we, we moved, like, we raced all over. Like, there's Europe and then India as well and Asia and all those places. So it definitely, it's, it's very, a lot of traveling included. But Canada, I really hope, personally, it grows in Canada because there's not much racing in Canada because I would say the weather is pretty um, <laughs> not the best. But um, I hope it grows in Canada as well. And can you tell us a little bit what it's been like for you to compete? I know recently you you accomplished uh, you did a three hour endurance race in California, um, but what's what's it like to get in these cars? I mean, I've seen you know you've seen them on TV. But what's it like to get in these cars and race around the track? What's the feeling? It's just I don't know. It's like it's it's like you're in a different world. It's the there's like a whole adrenaline rush, and you just kind of I don't know. You just kind of drive. It's like in a different world. Like swimming to me was. You had that rush as well, but it's a little different because you're jumping into a cold pool. But here it's just like, I don't know, there's a different rush to it. I think every sport has their own rush, but yeah, it's fun. <laughs> uh, and if you're just joining the show now, I'm talking to Nicole Haverda. She's a 16-year-old uh, teenager from Comox Valley, BC, and she's currently training to hopefully become uh, a Formula One uh, driver. Uh, now, Nicole... You know, there's as I mentioned in, before the break, and certainly just before speaking with you, there's not a lot of women. I mean, there's a lot of women, I think, kind of around Formula One, but there's certainly not a lot of drivers. Are you sort of are you the only girl in in your like in you're competing against, or are there other women that are competing at your level now? Well, when I started in karting, there were not many girls. Like I did see a couple on the grid, but now I go back to the kart track and stuff, and there's so many girls. And um, in my like in Formula Three right now. There are none competing, but in Formula 4, there, there are definitely a couple. But I think there's this whole platform called the W Series, which is definitely helping women get into Formula 1. So it's a support series of Formula 1. So they're really like their marketing is really good to get women out there. And it's just trying to – it's a full women series. So it's trying to help women kind of get to Formula 1. And that's definitely helping women get to the grid. So if you were, if a young girl was listening, because I remember actually it's funny when I was a kid, I really wanted um, a remote control car, and it was just like I, I asked for one every year, and you know for whatever reason I never got one. I, you know, we, I but I had Barbies and other things. So if you're a young girl that's listening right now, or a parent of a young girl that's interested in race car driving, interested in those sorts of things, um, what would you say to them to get involved? Like how would you encourage them to do that? I would say just do it. You know, you can't lose anything, um, and also, you know. I noticed personally when I started, you know, you get a lot of time with your family. So I think it's very important, like, I would say to a young girl, like, you know, you, you're going to have a lot of time with your family. You're going to have so much fun, you know, it's just like traveling the world for racing, you know, as your sport. And I would say just go for it. You know, you can do it. Just stay determined. And, yeah. And you recently got to meet um I guess one of your idols, uh, which is seven-time Formula One champion Lewis Hamilton. He's also my favorite driver. I can't really say. What, what was that like? Oh, my God. It was incredible. Like, when he first walked in the room, I was like, is that actually him? Is he just, like, a sculpture or something? It was so cool. And it was so – he's been my idol for so long. And it was, like – it was just cool to see how much he has put into racing and you know like his whole life is racing he has nothing else like you know like he 
he's so disciplined and focused and he's just very kind and he just wants to help others. Like he was talking about in our talk on TSN, he was talking about like diversity and how it should change in the sport and how he's helping it. And I think it's very important to see this coming from, you know, seven-time world champion for him to say that. It's very, it's very important. He should be an eight-time world champion, but I will not even get yeah. into that on the show. That's a <laughs> other conversation. Uh, and so if, if folks are interested in your story and listening, now you're going to be in an up-and-coming uh, documentary by Mercedes-Benz that profiles female drivers. Um, when can we expect to see that and where can folks watch it? Yes, yeah, stay tuned. It will be on either Netflix, Amazon Prime, you know, just the basic platforms. And I think it's releasing the end of September. It's still getting finalized a lot, a lot of a lot of new stuff is getting added in, but it's gonna be it's gonna be a very cool documentary to see. That's awesome. And so, Nicole, if if we wanted to watch you race, is there any places to catch you uh, next? Where are you off to next in your in your adventures? Um, I'm going to Sonoma. That's in San Francisco, California. So that's my next upcoming big race. And yeah, just on mostly social media i think they do have youtube and stuff but there's social media my social media which is nicole Averta racing um yeah that's mainly mainly it awesome okay well nicole thank you so much for coming on the show um you know good luck with your racing career i think it's amazing that as a young woman you're doing this and hopefully one day i can cheer you on from my couch on a sunday morning <laughs> thank you so much i appreciate it okay talk soon that was Nicole Haverda. She's a 16-year-old teen from Comox Valley, B.C. She's a current Formula 3 racer and hoping eventually to become a Formula 1 racer. If you're interested in her story, and she's one of you know a few young women who are making that kind of leap, there will be a documentary about her and two other women released at the end of September, uh, produced by Mercedes-Benz. So exciting, uh, really encouraging, great to see young women participate in this kind of stuff, and lovely to put the spotlight on, on someone like Nicole. She sounds like a very motivated young woman, for sure. Uh, How's your summer vacation been so far? Has it been good? We're going to do our latest edition of our cross-Canada road trip next on Free For All Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, or where we get into some of the biggest stories of the week. And of course, we uh, do lots of one of the, the segments we've been doing all over the uh, the summer has been this cross Canada road trip, where we take you across Canada to interview different mayors from capital cities across the country. We've certainly had some uh, some wonderful conversations with with mayors. My favorite actually, believe it or not, was the mayor of uh, mayor of Regina. Uh, and I was not expecting candidly to want to visit Regina after that conversation. There are places I, I really want to go up north to the Northwest Territories. Never been. I would love to go to the Yukon. Uh, but Regina really wasn't on my hit list. And I will say that woman was totally sold the place. I learned all kinds of things about 
you know, like the Regina specific pizza that they have. Um, there's great beer there. Uh, she just sounded like a total party. And I, as some of you will know, um, obviously I'm, I'm pregnant, so I can't go drink with her yet. But once uh, the baby's out of here, I will certainly be trying to make a trip there to see if I can <laughs> I can hang out with the mayor of Regina. Uh, and hopefully joining us soon. I think he's just tied up right now. So this is the beauty of live radio, friends, is uh, Mayor Philip Brown. He's the mayor of Charlottetown and PEI. And in prepping for this segment, I looked into, and I've never been to PI either, I will say candidly, and I'm not sure if any of you 71010 have been there. Um, I have friends that have born there, um, have places there, and uh, they rave about it and say it's an amazing place to visit. And apparently over one million tourists visit the island each year. Uh, so, you know, it's an ex- obviously folks are wanting to go there, certainly on my bucket list. And now joining us to actually talk about why we should go visit is Mayor Philip Brown. Mayor Brown, thanks so much for joining the show. Hello, Amanda. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Well, not too bad. We just uh, completed our 60th uh, Gold Cup and Saucer parade through the streets of Charlottetown, the first time in three years. And uh, there was ten to 15,000 people lying in the streets. So it was a great morning to start off uh, the, the, the evening before the Gold Cup and Saucer big race uh, tomorrow evening. So sorry, in the, sorry, the parade is to celebrate what exactly? So uh, this is, right now we're celebrating this our, um, annual um, island festival. It's Old Home Week, and Old Home Week is a combination of, of uh, agricultural presentations, horse racing, uh, camel's amusement uh, park or amusement uh, um, uh, circus, circus that's in, in Charlottetown, and uh, today was as part of those uh, ce- as part of the celebration. Uh, we celebrated our 60th Gold Cup and Saucer Parade uh, through the cities of Charlottetown. The first time it took place was in 1962, and uh, it, it's a prelude to the, the the big final race tomorrow night as part of the, the finale, the All Home Week, and that's the Gold Cup and Saucer uh, race, uh, race 12. Amazing. And that sounds amazing. And sounds like lots of fun. And congratulations for doing it for the first time in three years. And is this a race, like a foot race? Is this a car race? Is oh, this no, a horse no, no, race? No. What kind of race I, is it? I, I'm just assuming you knew. Uh, Amanda, no. it's, a horse, it's a sulky. It's a horse race. It's a oh. horse racing. Yes. Yeah, so we don't use the barebacks like you have up at the uh, Woodbine. It's a sulky with a horse and, and, and cart with the, the, the driver on the back. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's a tradition that started at the Charlottetown Raceway uh, a raceway driving park back in 1888, and that's when the race op- Yeah, it's op- it opened then, and uh, it's now 137 years in business, and it's been just a fabulous uh, uh, week. We had great weather. Today was a little bit of rain, but then the rain blew away, and it was sunny, and uh, the, the parade went ahead, and as I said, first time in three years, and everybody was glad to see it back. Awesome. And Mayor, you, Mayor Ron, you've, I, I mentioned on before you, you joined us, there's about a million tourists visit the island each year, obviously, mm-hmm. not specific to Charlottetown, but the island's not a, not a huge place, so nope. I'm sure they managed to make their way through your yeah. town. Yeah. Um, what, uh, you know, to our listeners across the country, some of whom have obviously heard of the romanticism of, of, of the island of Charlottetown, yeah. what would be your pitch to tell them to come visit? Well, it, one, one thing you have to, it, one very historic point is that Charlottetown is the birthplace of this nation. It was the 
a city that a capital city that hosted the uh, Charlottetown Conference in 1864, first week in September. That was the first of three meetings that took place. And then in 1867, on July 1st, we became a country. So that is a significant part of our history. The other part is that we have beautiful beaches, probably the best beaches on the northeastern seaboard on the North Shore, and that they are approximately 15 to 20 minutes from downtown Charlottetown. And then there's the urban-rural mix is a great mix because not only do we have agriculture, farming, but we also have the fisheries and tourism. And tourism is one of the, one of the three main income earners on Prince Edward Island, along with the, uh, light manufacturing. So if, if, if I was to, to tell anyone or any of your listeners about the city of Charlottetown, it's got that historic feel, feel, uh, feeling to it. Uh, cruise ships that come in here to uh, port, uh, starting in May, and then they take a break during the summer, but are back in September. We get thousands and thousands of visitors that come off the cruise ships that go through the city, take bus tours up to the North Shore, um, up to western part of Prince Edward Island, eastern part of Prince Edward Island, and all come back with great uh, memories and, and great experiences. So it's a great place to experience uh, city life, urban, uh, urban and rural, rural, rural lifestyles, but at the same time, enjoying great cuisine, great, great places to stay, and just a good feeling uh, when you leave. And if you're just joining us now, we're talking to Mayor Philip Brown. He's the mayor of Charlottetown. Uh, mayor Brown, what is the best time to visit? You know, visit Prince Edward Island, Charlottetown, well, or Prince Edward Island. Is there, is there a specific time me. of year you'd recommend? Yeah, for me, I, I do not leave the island during the summer because it's the best time of the year, July and August. But I can tell you that in the fall, in the fall, September and October, right into November, it's a great time of year. We do have our Prince Edward Island International Shellfish, uh, Shellfish Festival, and it's between the, it goes on from September 15th to the 18th. This is an event that has put Prince Edward Island on the Prince Edward Island on the culinary map. It features live entertainment, challenges, oyster shucking, competitions, celebrity chef appearances, and other action-packed culinary uh, uh, challenges. And it's and then there's also the ends of, of uh, Bay, uh, Bay Fortune, beautiful area down in the in in uh, eastern Prince Edward Island. But again, you can get all those experiences within 20 to, let's say, 40 minutes within the city of Charlottetown. And I believe that's why Charlottetown is a great place to come and uh, rent an uh, Airbnb or rent a hotel motel room or stay at one of our beautiful bed and breakfasts uh, facilities or places here in the city of Charlottetown and have access to many great points of interest uh, around the island. So definitely during the summer, but the fall is just as nice. And uh, late May and June, so it's it's tourism Prince Edward Island, tourism Charlottetown have been working for years on developing the shoulder seasons in the early fall and the late spring, and I think they're starting to come around to make things happen three seasons instead of just one season for tourism. Okay, well you heard it there. Thank you so much, uh, Mayor Brown, for coming on the show. We're just at the time here, but appreciate that. If you've uh, listening from home. You can go there any time of year, summer, fall, or uh, spring. And certainly I'm looking forward one day to checking that out. Free for All Friday Roundtable is next. We're going to dig deeper into one year later since Canada's exit from Afghanistan. And when is it a good time for a politician to swear? 
Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Free For All Friday. We're now into the roundtable part of the show, which is my favorite part of the show. That's where we get really smart people, biggest newsmakers, Apparently, kings of self-proclaimed kings of radio. As I was listening earlier today, see how to it catches on. on? <laughs> I will call you your highness for the next hour, Jerry. Um, that is, of course, Jerry Agar, host of the Jerry Agar Show on News Talk 1010. Uh, and we also joining us today is Karen Rustool, CEO of Shared Value Solutions, Bold Realities, and Whose Land. Uh, Karen and Jerry, welcome back to the show. I don't think you've ever been on together, and I've been looking no. forward to this, by the way. So. Like oh, no. Debate. What does that mean? I'm excited. <laughs> You'll, You'll find good. out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. All right. Well, we're going to dig into this first one. Um, I mentioned it off the top in my rant, but it has been over a year since the Taliban seized control of Kabul. Uh, and Canada's resettlement goals still lag behind the targets that we set out. Um, NDP immigration critic Jenny Kwan is demanding that the federal government do more to help Afghans who assisted Canadian forces flee the war-torn country. It is not acceptable. No more excuses. Get on with it and do your job. Fulfill the responsibility and the duty of bringing them to safety. Now, she's speaking about the fact that obviously Canada promised to accept 40,000 Afghan refugees. So far, just over 17,000 have arrived, far less than what we had promised. Uh, the Canadians, King Everton says 8,000 Afghans have been approved to come, another 3,000 who have helped the Canadian Armed Forces have not yet been approved. She also warned that lives are at stake and the government will be at fault if it does not act swiftly to fulfill them and get, to, get them to Canada. They are part of the Canadian military. They served us when we needed them the most. They put their lives at risk and that of their family members at risk. Now, as we speak, they're being hunted down by the Taliban. We cannot abandon them. Miriam Sahar is a former interpreter for the Canadian Forces in Afghanistan. And she told the Evan Solomon Show this week her sister, brother-in-law, and their new baby remain stuck in Pakistan. Does Canada want to be known as a country of action and compassion or one of our paperwork and cowardice? She says, well, three family members made it out of Afghanistan on the last flight. She's still fighting for her sister, who gave birth last week. I mean, I'm getting emotional, Evan, because... Like that baby was not given a birth certificate. They struggled to get a birth certificate for him. And this is how they're living. The humiliation, the insults, the disrespect. She says the Canadian government is not doing enough to help. And the paperwork is, quote, ridiculous. The government of Canada has certainly uh, failed the Afghan interpreters. Um, There's still a lot of requirements uh, that needs to be fulfilled uh, before they brought to um, Canada. So, Jerry, you know, as a year ago this happened, you know, what came to mind when I was talking about this was the, the image of the, the Afghan woman throwing, you know, basically almost throwing but thrusting her baby over a barbed wire fence to an American soldier because they thought their future of their country was so poor that this is a better chance for their child, which I can't imagine making that decision. A year later, we sit and we've only got 17,000 um, Afghan refugees here in Canada. In contrast to that, by the way, 70,000 Ukrainians have come to Canada in 2022. I know there are different circumstances, but I think it's important to draw that distinction. Uh, Jerry, do you think the government's done enough? No, I thought it was right when you said we sit. 
But if you give me a minute here, I want to tell you a story, because I've never been to Afghanistan, but I was to Iraq. I was working in the United States at the time, and I went with the um, with the Pentagon and the 101st Mountain Division, and we went out looking for bombs and various things. And there was a woman who was with us who was an interpreter, and I got to talk to her a fair amount, because oftentimes the soldiers were busy doing what they were doing, and she and I were standing off to the side and talking. And at one point, a young lad came across the street who was watching the, the soldiers, etc. And he came across the street and he looked at me and he said something in Arabic and I just shook my head. And then he said in pretty good English, are you Iraqi? And I said, no, I'm an American journalist. I'm not American, but I mean, that's, that was the deal. I was with the Americans. Mm -hmm. And so I said that and he lost interest in me and he turned and he did the same questioning with her. She did not respond at all. Her face was covered, not for religious reasons, but for reasons of not being able to be identified. And when the guy walked away, the kid, he was a kid, he walked away, and I said to her, what's the deal with that? She said, well, he's with the terrorists. He's looking for people like me. And her name was Faith. And I said, that's not your real name, is it? She said, and this is what I think about whenever I think about these people trapped there under the threat of the Afghans, she said, I call myself faith because i have faith these terrorists or these these soldiers these soldiers will save my country and those are the kinds of people we are now leaving behind yeah and it's like it's you know that's an incredibly powerful story jerry and it's it's one you know we've seen played out over and over again right people hiding in pakistan hiding in afghanistan people being killed and to me i think you know to your point it's it's not just about numbers it's about actual individuals and their lives karen what do you make of the government? You know, the immigration ministers are defending this, saying we're doing as much as we can. It's incredibly complicated. It's not fair to compare it to Ukraine because they have commercial flights and et cetera, et cetera. But do you think the government's doing enough? No, I think this goes back to if there's a will, there's a way. Uh, the government does a lot of talking, uh, but it struggles in terms of action. And I think that we're falling short on key humanitarian action here because we can't pull ourselves together uh, in terms of a public service and a bureaucracy. Um, I think at the core, that's what we're dealing with here is an issue of state capacity and competence. This is about the federal government's ability to carry out core services to real people efficiently and effectively. Um, and some will argue that the pandemic toppled government onto its head um, and the pandemic is what contributed to the lag and gaps in service and processing. But I'm having a hard time seeing this. Um, you know, Amanda, I'm Indigenous. Uh, and as a First Nations woman in this country, I've personally experienced the low capacity and competence uh, or lack thereof of the federal government to deliver on essential services. And this was long before the pandemic came around. We're talking about basic infrastructure, an obvious issue that everyone that the entire public uh, country uh, is aware of is, is lack of clean drinking water, roads, housing, education. So when I, you know, when I think about this issue and this challenge that we're facing here, um, it's very sad to me, but it's not surprising when I hear of these issues in delayed immigration for Afghans uh, who are in a particular precarious situation who have been made, you know, certain promises who've been approved to come over. Um, I really feel for them um, from a, you know, in a, in a very personal way, but also it makes me very uncomfortable and frustrated as a Canadian citizen to think that the government just can't pull it together 
at a time when it should be. Jerry, do you think Karen's right? It's it's there's uniqueness to the circumstance, but this is also the government is just frankly incompetent in some of these areas. And this is an example like I like there's four, uh, I believe, translators or whatever you want to call them, who have actually made a complaint to the uh, Canadian Human Rights um you know, like in and that's institution, which is not going to advance anything. But it's so bad that that's what they feel they have to do. Um, do you think it's just like it's unique government incompetence or the regular government incompetence that we're looking at? Well, I think we have uh, thorough uh, government incompetence at the moment. They can't do passports. They can't do the airports. Um, They don't seem to know what they want to do with the border. And the best thing that Karen said right off the top of her comments was where there's a will, there's a way. These people put themselves at great risk to help Canada, and we've walked away. And I don't want to hear the political two-step. I don't want to hear the yang, 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 yang. They're doing nothing, as far as I can tell. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting to me, like, the contrast with Ukraine. I know there's different circumstances, but if we can get 70,000 Ukrainians to Canada on um, special visas where they're treated as visitors and we're making Afghan refugees, people who supported us, at great risk to their families, as we know, um, do biometrics or whatever else, uh, you know, paper, incredible paperwork, I just think... They need to get the head to shake. So well, here's why I'm sorry. I don't want to run yeah. out of time here. Where I think it's different is that Ukraine is not fighting it, whereas the Taliban are. We should have got these people out as soon as we left. And, of course, yeah. that wasn't done. But so now it's a complicated exactly. problem. Yeah. Exactly. All right, we are in violent, agree- violent agreement on that and, of course, running out of racetrack to continue the debate. But we'll certainly keep an eye on this as this evolves. And hopefully next year we'll have a little bit of results from the government. Next up, an Ontario mayor has harsh words for protesters. Is it ever okay for elected officials to swear? That is the question to the panel next. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. Happy Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we dig into the biggest stories of the week and debate them with some smart, amazing people. And on the show today, we have two of my favorites, by the way, two of my favorite guests, two of my favorite friends. Um, the folks who've never been on the show together, Jerry Ager, host of the Jerry Ager Show on News Talk 1010, and Karen Rastul, CEO of Shared Value Solutions, Bold Realities, and Whose Land. And so far, so good with our Jerry-Karen matchmaking, but as Jerry pointed out at the break... There's still lots of show to go. So. <laughs> I have a way of eventually not getting along. Oh, <laughs> oh that's my favorite stinger is the Doug Ford. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Um, so this next one is a bit weird. So, folks, you've got to kind of settle in with me for a second. Um, you'll have seen this week supporters of the so-called Queen of Canada. Uh, she's self-proclaimed. She's actually not Queen Elizabeth. She's a Canadian conspiracy theorist and QAnon queen, self-appointed, um, named Romana Dudulio. Um, she directed uh, her followers to attempt to place officers under citizen's arrest. So um, she attempted to arrest, they sent about 30 individuals assembled in front of the Peterborough police office over the weekend uh, to arrest police officers. As you can imagine, uh, that group of geniuses had little success. Here is Frank Kurt. Frank Curtin, he's the leader of the, the push of the station, said initially they would stay as long as necessary. We are not leaving here today, and when those officers try to leave today, we are going to arrest them. <laughs> as 
you can imagine, no officers were successfully placed under citizen's arrest. Instead, two of the activists, whatever you want to call them, were arrested and charged with two counts of assaulting police. Now, Peterborough Mayor Diane Theron didn't mince words about the antics from some of the protesters this weekend. Uh, John Moore, host of More in the Morning on News Talk 1010, asked the mayor why she used such strong language. Well, I mean, I think we need to change the discourse about what is mayoral or not. And, you know, these uh, these imbeciles have been um, wreaking havoc in communities across across the country. Uh, now, for context, the mayor did call them um, F word wads and also told them to F off. Uh, <laughs> uh, she also says people have largely been supportive of her language. We need to be, uh, you know, unafraid to sort of say it like it is, you know. Um, it might not be the most polite thing, but these folks aren't acting in, in a polite manner in any way. Uh, and it's like enough is enough. She also said it's not the first time she's received complaints about using strong language online. I've had people file a, you know, complaint about me using uh, salty language on Twitter before, and the integrity commissioner found it that it's my personal view, and I can express myself how how I want. And I think, um, I think more people need to do that and be unafraid to to use language, uh, strong language, when it's appropriate. Now, radio listeners, you will not know, but I have a very uh, salty. Way of speaking. Um, when I'm not on air, I definitely use my fair share of different F-bombs or whatever in my day-to-day life. Jerry will know that. So, mm-hmm. Karen. Uh, <laughs> I actually remember I did the, the podcast once when the with the Rush ages ago when they were doing it. And a bunch of listeners texted and were like, I can't believe how much Amanda swears. So, I think a good swear word is useful. <laughs> I think in particular, sometimes in business, when I need to get people's attention. I'm a little, I used to be a small woman before I was very pregnant. I could kind of, you know, pound my fist and drop a word or whatever. So I think it's appropriate, particularly in these circumstances when these idiots were doing what they were doing. Uh, but Jerry, do you think it's acceptable for politicians to swear? Is it, is it, should we redefine what is mayoral or is this uh, uh, too far? Well, as far as I'm concerned, what is mayoral is getting the job done. Um, these things to me are secondary. I'm not so upset about it. On the other hand, though, I think you could ask yourself as a mayor, instead of using the excuse like she did, well, I'm a millennial. Well, so what? How good a mayor are you? She has nothing to lose because she's not running again. Um, so for me, I think I would default to rise above, uh, so to speak, um, you know, in terms of recalling these people imbeciles. And I mean, the sovereign citizen movement is in many countries around the world, Australia, Canada, the United States, people who say that uh, the laws have no uh, bearing on them and they can go out and uh, arrest the police. This is just total fools. So the fact that she got upset about it happening in her town, I understand. And so she let loose a little. Like I said, I'd be less concerned about that than her record if I were in Peterborough and looking to re-elect her if she were running. Uh, Karen, I heard you laughing. What do you think about this one? Are you you pro-mayor about... (laughs) The swear, the f bombs, or are we? Uh, this is too far. Well, I think I, on a personal front, I think people know that I'm I'm quite comfortable throwing the uh, the f word around, uh, like you, Amanda, when it's necessary <laughs> and useful. Um, but I think what comes to mind here is maybe she's just being her true and authentic self. Isn't that what all the recent studies are encouraging among public and private leadership? Is authenticity? You know, maybe this is her vehicle to build or rebuild trust in public leadership and institutions but uh jokes aside i don't think that's what uh, policy thinkers had in mind when they were pushing that uh that thought leadership forward but 
I think on a serious front, I agree with Jerry, as an elected uh, official, as an elected leader, you operate with a greater degree of responsibility and you're showing up for all citizens, those that voted for you and those that didn't vote for you. So I think she's missing the mark here. She's showing up as Diane the person and not as the mayor of X town uh, by casting her own opinion. And that's that's not your role as an, an elected official. You're not there to judge. You think about citizens across the country who are frustrated by the challenges of the pandemic. Everyone's been hit economically. The inflation's going up. And when you think about the role of an elected leader, you're really looking at citizen engagement. And for the past two years, citizens have been spoken to and at by people like her. And so there is a healthy level, well, maybe an unhealthy level of frustration that's being expressed in all kinds of ways. And role, the role of the elected leader is to listen. Hey, and, that's, um, and that's where she should have sat and not extended beyond uh, in the way that she did. You know, um, I, I, I can't be holier than thou on this either, by the way, uh, in terms of the use of language. But, but you know, I'm going to defer here to one of the more well-known writers in our generation here, Stephen King. And Stephen King, in his book on writing, says, never swear. And then he goes, oh, I, I realize people are saying, Stevie King says, don't swear. And he says, I never swear. My characters swear. But as the teller of the tale or the leader of what's going on there, he said, um, it, it, I lose credibility if that's what I were to do. I have to use the English language as best I can. And maybe that's something that elected officials should think about. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, though, because I find and maybe it's a like a feminine perspective, but I find I actually weirdly gain credibility when I swear, like, especially like obviously not on radio because I would be in trouble with people. But in my day job, when I people are in crisis or I'm trying to get attentions of executives or CEOs, I find if I drop an F-bomb, it like people's eyes kind of drop out or, you know, they say, oh, OK, like they listen. Right. And it's it's all right. She's you know, she's feisty, pushy, direct, whatever you want to say. So I've used it strategically to my advantage. Uh, and I think women sometimes can because it plays against type where i think the interesting thing that karen pointed out about this is um this disengagement from citizens and the lack of authenticity so i kind of wonder if people hear a mayor talking about talking how they really feel and my guess is those 30 people that assembled to try and citizen arrest cops you know they feel like this is an accurate characterization of that behavior that maybe that works um in a way but but i get what you're both saying about this is not the most mayoral thing in the world but as someone who worked for a mayor i think sometimes there's a time for you to sort of drop the gloves well a couple of quick things here um if it's judiciously placed as you were saying and, yeah. and is noticed then fine if you have to uh use it two three times in every sentence then you're just you need to work on your communication abilities and second of all i look forward to hearing john tory do it <laughs> I, I, I could I mean, not I have maybe been the recipient of it, <laughs> so for him. So I can tell you occasionally. I think all of us have used a uh, use could use a swear jar uh, once in a while, if but could, obviously. If I could just go ahead, add here twenty seconds, a you can real quick. Yeah, yeah, super quick. Like in the context that she used it, if we're going to go down this road, like she is calling them a name that engages a swear word, right? What you're saying, Amanda and Jerry, is that you can use a swear word in the right context where it motivates and it, like, it awakens. But in this case, she's actually casting judgment, opinion on a particular subset of people. I'm not saying I agree with how they were acting, 
That's not up for discussion right now. It's the fact that she is casting opinion on and at okay. a certain group of people. All right. We'll keep debating that next on Free For All Friday after the break. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Sorry, I just really like that song and I wanted to like keep it going. <laughs> I just decided not to come in. I'm... I love that song. I'm Amanda Galbraith, uh, host of Free For All Friday. Welcome back to the show, and hopefully you're having an amazing Friday wherever you are in our big, beautiful country. Uh, today, we debate the biggest stories of the week, and today on the panel, I have Jerry Agar, host of the Jerry Agar Show, uh, in Toronto, based out of Toronto on News Talk 1010, and Karen Rastul, CEO Shared Value Solutions, Bold Realities, and Whose Land. This next story is one we've certainly debated before, but there's a bit of a new angle to it. Uh, obviously, we know we're... We don't want to admit it as a country, I think, but we're the middle of middle of August. You know, back to school is coming soon. Pumpkin spice lattes will be coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> but also, <laughs> it is. They're coming out. They're coming for you, Jerry. <laughs> PSL season. <laughs> but <laughs> it's also, is it going to be back to the office? So the Royal Bank of Canada uh, CEO came out this week, and they're basically asking employees to come to the office more frequently. Uh, in a memo that was sent to all of their staff, They said, while many types of work can be done productively out of the office, quote, technology can't replicate the energy, spontaneity, big ideas, true sense of belonging, and fun, end quote, of being together in person. And that is the RBC Chief Executive Officer, Dave McKay. Um, He said it to employees on Tuesday. So in addition... So that's that's an important thing to think about. Are we so now I know they also had some specific about hybrid arrangements. So they basically said, well, there was no rules. You don't have to be back five days a week. Folks who are currently working from home, if you're in a hybrid work environment, you will have to be in person, for example, for two to three days a week. Now, we want to talk about this, but also there's an additional impact, right, if you think about it. So if employees are not downtown in the offices, it also impacts the business around them. So. Todd Simpson is the owner of Morning Owl Coffee Shop in Ottawa, which is located right in the heart of downtown. And there's been a lot of coverage about how public servants do not want to come back to work. So they used to stop for a coffee pre-COVID, but now? Oh, it's huge. Uh, We're in the TBS building and uh, we're 85% uh, what we were before COVID down. Uh, It's um, it's just uh, horrible. People returning to the office is the only glimmer of hope for many downtown business owners. Uh, the building is supposed to be bringing back 25% at a hybrid uh, capacity. Uh, that's supposed to start uh, beginning of September, so we'll, uh, we'll see what that brings. Now, RBC he is Canada's largest lender. They have 89,000 workers around the world, and they're sort of following uh, what many of the U.S. rivals have been doing by cutting back on remote work. So... In, at least in Toronto, where I am, I work downtown. I've been in the office actually quite a bit, like maybe four days a week in the last little bit. I do my show from home. But I, I like it. I like being around people. I think it's better. I think I get more, you know, I'm an extrovert. So I like, I get my energy from folks. So I'm okay with the idea that people should be together in the office. Uh, but Jerry, do you think this is a fair thing to ask of people? Should we, you know, we're past the pandemic now. Um, should we be saying, okay, it's fall, it's back to school, get your pumpkin spice lattes, get on your, get in your car, get on the transit and get back to the office? Well, first of all, we're not being asked, we're being told. 
Um, so that's part of it. And, you know, I, color me now more well-informed because I looked at this Financial Post article about RBC and the CEO says technology can't replicate the energy, spontaneity, big ideas, true sense of belonging and fun of being in the office. And I had been given to understand it wasn't that much fun to work at the bank. But uh, <laughs> I, I guess I guess I'm wrong. Um, so there's that. Uh, but but I do agree essentially with what he's saying. I would prefer kind of a hybrid uh, model. There was a lot of value for me to be in the studio, a lot of value to be hanging with the producer and the board op and the other people that are around, although there's precious few of them these days around here. Uh, but that that said, uh, that doesn't mean we need to do it every single day. We're good communicators. We can get ideas across to each other. We don't have to come in and do it again tomorrow. So I don't think everybody has to be back in the office um, five days a week in order for things to work. We proved that over the pandemic. And one more thing, I feel for the guy or gal who has a coffee shop in an office building and suddenly there aren't people there. I do, but that, with all due respect, does not obligate me to come to work and buy coffee. Karen, uh, as a millennial, do you think it's fair to ask employees, do you think it's, it's actually viable, but do you think it's fair to ask employees to forsake their home work arrangements and be back in the office? Well, first of all, I am an elder millennial, and I think same, my friend, same, clinging to that status. <laughs> so we're in that fun place where we can see the power of both, right? I think yeah. if I could just step aside and just pull us back into the use of language on this one, this has been driving me bonkers the entire pandemic, where people always say back to work, and when you say back to work, it implies that if we're not in that office in that gray cubicle that we're not actually working. And I think in my experience, I don't think I know in my experience, that's simply not true. You have a whole host of people who've been working extra long days throughout the pandemic to get things back in order, back moving, creating new systems, responding to the new reality um, and, and innovating. Uh, and so when we think about this connection between a physical space um, and uh, production and results. I think there's a huge disconnect here, uh, and that's a part of the conversation that uh, that I think is missing. I think that you... managers and owners need to get their head around something because I just we just got a text message here. Let me read it to you. Nothing about fair. I hired you to work in my office. Get your arse in here. I pay you or hit the bricks. Okay, good. <laughs> the, yeah, take that as a policy. And smart, especially smart young people, the better workers, they will hit the bricks. They'll go get another job. You get to keep the average workers. Good for you. Your loss. It needs to yeah. be about results, right? And if, if, you're making, if you're making pitas or sandwiches, of course, you're going to have to be, quote, unquote, back at the office. But if, if, if it's all about what's commonsensical, what's pragmatic in this situation. Can you do a good job? Can you achieve results, you know, in, in locations outside of that cubby? Then fine, give her shit, right? But otherwise, um, I don't see the, this obsession to tie us to uh, a chair and desk. And it's interesting, too, because I think to to your point, Jerry, one of the things I even see in my, my day job at Navigator is we obviously have a range of people that work for us. But a lot of the young people, frankly, they can't afford places downtown. So they're living with their parents and they're interning or associate consultants. They're hauling in hour, hour and 15, 20 minutes to get to the office every day. So for them, it's easier to work from home. Now, I like the collaborativeness of being together. I think it's a bit, I, I just I hate being on video all day long. But if these kids can't afford to live near they work and telling them to commute an hour and a half to me 
is bananas. So I, I feel like there's got to be some kind of happy medium. And, and if we don't allow them to do that, so many other people are allowing more work. I think you're going to lose some of that talent, uh, which is, I think is a big, is a big risk. Um, that being said, I'm an old person and I like people being in the office you're not that next old. to me. You're not that old. That's very kind. I'm going to play that back to myself in fact, every time it, I see a new wrinkle in, in the fact, mirror. In fact, this is the first week I've ever thought I could beat you in a foot race, but it's because you're eight and a half months pregnant. <laughs> yeah, you 100% could, by the way. The struggle with... I'd, I'd, pay, to, I'd pay to watch that. <laughs> I think she'd have you even in heels, Jerry. Maybe. Pregnant, pregnant and in heels. That's well, very kind, my friends, Very and very, very supportive of both of you. So where do you think we're going to land here? Do we have a big, we're going to have a mass resignation at RBC, Karen, or do you think that um, they'll just kind of try and work, work it out as we, as we go and people will slowly tootle back in? I think we're in a new world and people are going to go where they feel uh, that the policies make the most sense in a time where we're dumping a ton of money in innovation. Uh, I think it's really time for us to exercise that concept and think about how it applies in terms of work production and productivity. Jerry, do you expect to see the downtown Toronto flooded with people in the fall, or are we going to kind of slowly inch through this thing? Well, I'm sure there are some people who want to go back to the office just because it's the wonderful feeling of getting out of what we had for those two and a half years. And maybe people who are older and have been habituated to the fact that, you know, they they bought into, as Karen said, you know, back to work. Uh, But it is kind of insulting, now that you've pointed it out, to say that we weren't working at home. Um, So I think with younger people, I know a number of really smart young people and uh, they can get jobs where they don't have to go to the office all the time so if you don't want to hire the really smart young people then hire the dummies that'll come in just because you told them to and and how does that improve your business like i i just don't understand that the the, the people who need to realize and get with the times are people like i guess more around my age wake up all right there you go wake up people if you want the dummies make them come in if not We'll see how it rolls. Um, all right. Next up after the break, a favorite Canadian store, a fav- favorite of mine at the very least, is making a comeback. Is the panel excited for it, as Canadians are? Because it's been making news all week. Find out after the break. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. Amanda Galbraith here, host of Free For All Friday. We're in the last segment where we try to have a little bit of fun with our panel uh, stories for the week. Now, today we've got with us Jerry Ager, host of the Jerry Ager Show on News Talk 1010 in Toronto, and Karen Restul, CEO of Shared Value Solutions, Bold Realities, and Whose Land. Now, this matchmake that we've done today on the show seems to be working well as Jerry and Karen have not gotten along. Well, So maybe you'll come back together as a panelist. I quite, oh. quite enjoy the vibe we've got. You're going to keep having us until we get in a fight? Yes, I think that's the challenge. I'm, I'm exactly. up for it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, now we'll get to matchmaking in a second, but I did want to talk this. There's a new uh, a, a iconic Canadian brand is coming back. So Hudson's Bay has announced plans to resurrect discount retail chain Zellers. Uh, so the discount department store obviously went away. It was a, it was around for decades. I fondly remember as a kid um, running around Zellers, hiding inside of the round coat racks while my mother was horrified and tried to find me. 
uh, and also obviously their their brand Zeti, the, uh, the the mascot may or may not return. So they will be existing inside of Hudson's Bay locations. This has come out to much fanfare in the country. Uh, Jerry, are you excited for Zellers? Do we need Zellers back in our lives, or is this just an you know? Are you not as interested in this thing? I'm 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 pretty pumped. Well, I've got a couple of issues here. First of all, there never was a Zellers in my life in Gilbert Plains, Manitoba. Um, so th- <laughs> there was that. So I mean, sad. we had Woolworths in Dauphin, um, and so there's that. First of all, I'm not a huge shopper. Uh, some people say that I missed out on the uh, turkey on white bread with gravy surrounded by peas, and uh, I really feel mm. badly about that. Um, but uh, so I I kind of go along with what Tony Chapman said on my show when we talked about this. Um, he said, "Look, the the discount." Um, landscape has been taken up by Giant Tiger and Walmart and a number of others you could name and may um, give your business to. So what what are they trying to solve? He said they're just trying to um, protect their trademark because there's no reason for Zellers to come back. Karen, uh, yeah, that's actually a great point, which is they're in a trademark dispute, so this just could be a play there. But um, Karen, do you have any fond memories of warm chicken sandwiches with peas or any other Zeller's iconic things? Is there, there was a, I was listening to the radio earlier this week, and literally a woman was like, this is giving me life. This is amazing. I am so excited to text people about this. Like, I enjoyed Zeller's, but not to that degree. But it seems to have hit sort of a, a different string with Canadians or a different place in their heart than you would expect. Yeah, trademark dispute aside, I think... The pandemic has put people in a pace of like wanting to like live in nostalgia. And so, Amanda, when I hear you, you know, reminisce about hiding in the racks at Zellers, I'm suddenly picturing you doing that pregnant in heels. Uh, and so <laughs> <laughs> can imagine what you're going to be doing when they first open their doors. But um, I was actually, I, I, I'll admit, I was very nostalgic when I saw all of the photos that were rolling in on Twitter. I was pleasantly surprised to see I wasn't the only one who had dined at Zellers with their grandparents. Uh, I wasn't the only one who enjoyed the hot chicken sandwich with the side of fries and the green peas. And I think I'm curious to see if they go if they go full on and bring back the cafeteria. It certainly worked for IKEA. I agree with Jerry. Like Giant Tiger is the big mainstay here uh, in northeastern Ontario in the Sudbury North Bay area. So I also am curious to see who they're competing with and what their what their value prop is. And it's, it's interesting we talk about cafeterias. My actually real seminal memory is, is the Bay uh, had a cafeteria in London, Ontario, which I would go with with my grandma. We would take the bus and yeah. we would go up there and I could get the um, chocolate, uh, it wasn't jello, but um, anyway, some like chocolate. Like a mousse? Like thing. pudding kind of yeah. thing? Yeah. Yeah, pudding. But it always had like a layer on top of it that I had to scrub. <laughs> <laughs> but it was my favorite. So pleasant. <laughs> it was my favorite treat with my grandma, my grandma Galbraith. Um, oh, people are loving Byway. Bring back Byway. I remember that too on the text board. All right. So I mentioned earlier matchmaking. So it is we're matchmaking between Jerry and Karen, but there's also, believe it or not, matchmaking still going on in this country. And this is in light of Tinder turning 10 years old next month. So this online dating app has shaped our lives. Earlier in the show, I spoke to Crystal Walter. She's a dating expert and matchmaker in Calgary. I asked her, do you think we're better or worse off with online dating now that we've had Tinder? Honestly, there's pros and cons to it. It goes both ways. I think for some people, it's made things worse. And for others, it's, you know, improved things. And, you know, even if I take a client, I always say, um, go online. Just try it if you haven't been online and then come back to me in a month if somebody has no idea how to date. 
So, Jerry, you know, I, it was funny. I was saying earlier on the show, I'm kind of unique in that I started dating when you know, email was just new. And you could send an email. And then I remember going to, like, a bar of a restaurant and waiting for somebody just hoping they'd come. Because there was no way for me to figure out if they were coming or not. Like, there wasn't a thing. I couldn't text yeah. them or any of those sorts of things. I got divorced, came back again, and then I had to learn to online date, which was, like, a whole other thing. I kind of treated it like a video game. Um, but do you think we're, you know, 10 years into Tinder, um, you know, 20 years into kind of online profiles, do you think we're better or worse as a society uh, for having online dating and for Tinder? Well, first of all, I don't think I dated since the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. Uh, <laughs> that's what it feels like uh, to a certain degree. So uh, I have no dating advice for anybody other than to say whether you're doing it online or talking for the first time in person. Or, how about this? Tell the truth and use a photo that's relatively new. This is this is true. No catfishing. Um, Karen, are you like I you don't have to disclose if you're online, but uh, do you do you think it's made life better for for singletons and young people in this world or is it made life or anyone, I should say, because everyone's using it or is it made life more complicated? Yeah, I can share Like I, I've definitely been on the apps before, but it, it all depends on how uh, you know what moment in time I'm in in my professional responsibilities and things have been quite hectic lately. So I'm not uh I'm not doing any dating apps these days, but um, I think that speaks to an issue here is like, how much time do people have to swipe right and left? Um, it's about taking decisive action, going out on the dates, putting yourself out there. Um, so has, you know, have dating apps made things more efficient? I think people are more hesitant to make a selection and take uh, the initiative to take the next step to meet in person. Um, so I think it's cr created a bit of like greater ambivalence. Um, and do I think it's changed things a lot? I think the people who select based on looks are still going to do that. And those who need a bit more are still going to do that. So I don't know. Okay. I, I don't think it's, I don't think there's been a huge shift, but, uh, definitely some advancements, I guess. All right. So, uh, Amanda is partnered up in building a family and I've been married forever. So you're the one Karen. So do you like pina coladas and walks in the rain? <laughs> I'm more of an iced tea girl in long boat rides, but uh, maybe that just speaks to where I'm from. Okay. <laughs> I'll have the iced tea with you as long as I bring a Mickey or something, but that'll be again in a month and a half. <laughs> Once this After the baby's arrived, right? To After the baby. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. have the iced tea, I'll have the Long Island tea. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Well, that uh, that's that for the show today. Uh, Jerry and Karen... Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today to debate all of the big topics. I know Jerry in particular because he has a three-hour show he does before this, so I always appreciate him coming on. And Karen, uh, wonderful to have you as always, my friend, and your your fantastic perspective on all things. Thanks to all of you listening. Um, I'm reading the text, including all your well wishes. Don't worry, I will be through, here with you through to the end of September, so there's a little ways to go before baby Galbraith McGregor arrives, at which point um, you'll be in someone else's hands for a little while. And of course, thank you to our producer, Mike, and producer Sam. I'm Amanda Galbraith. Uh, we will be back with you next Friday for a full two hours. So have a wonderful weekend.